This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast, live from the Cobble Group Studios here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm sitting down with Justine Moreau, who has been handling quite a bit of our own legal issues. Uh, she represents my brokers on almost every single triple net lease deal that we do, as well as some of the leasing that we do across our portfolio. And today we're going to be diving into hiring the right attorney. Uh, I have never, I was telling Justine this before we went live, I've never seen a deal that would have been better had an attorney not been involved. Now, of course, we have those moments, and I'm sure you've been across the the table with attorneys where, you know, they, they just try and tank a deal. Uh, but outside of that, actually getting the legal structure right, negotiating things properly on your behalf, attorneys are worth their weight in gold. And, you know, I hear from investors a lot, you know, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to spend the money on an attorney. I don't want to spend three to five thousand dollars. If the deal doesn't work with you spending three to five to ten thousand dollars up front to make sure that your investment is safe and protected and covered for the duration of your investment, then it's probably not a deal. Uh, anyway, Justine is, uh, she's an attorney. She worked with a couple of law firms before she landed at a local development group here in Nashville that actually developed nationally. So she was working on national credit tenants and triple net single tenant Nelly deals across the country before she left and started her own firm, which is why as soon as she went and started her own thing, we hired her to start doing all of our work because we've got a lot of that business. So Justine, that was a brief background on yourself, but tell us a little bit more about you. Tyler, um, that's pretty much it. I mean, I've, I've been practicing for over a decade now. I much, but uh, I went to law school up in Maryland, and then I moved here for a job with a local developer about seven years ago and did, you know, always represent the developer side, which was the seller and the landlord side of all throughout the country, primarily triple net, a lot of leasing work. And then I had the opportunity to go out on my own last June, which has been really good. Uh, there's something special about being, you know, the entrepreneurial bend. Nice. Yeah. And having your own clients that are truly yours. And it's a much more interesting day to day because I represent now uh, the tenant side, the landlord side, the buyer side, the seller side. It's just much more interesting. But it's been good. Yeah. It's fun. So let's, let's get into, um, why an investor should hire an attorney. So so like I kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of investors feel like, oh, I I, I understand negotiations. I can kind of do this myself. Or, you know, I've got a, you know, standard Tennessee Association of Realtors PSA. I should just use that. Well, tell us what's wrong with that. Well, <laughs> you're exactly right a few minutes ago when you were talking about, look, if you don't want to spend the three to 5000 or about about how much it, you know, that's kind of average, how much it's going to cost you to get a deal done. If you don't want to pay that amount, you probably shouldn't be full on with an investment if you don't want to spend that much to protect yourself. And, you know, I... I brush my teeth and I floss, but I'm not doing my own canal. Like that's so why I hire a dentist. And I just feel same with legal stuff. You can be a very intelligent person, but if you haven't been in the in the trenches, so to speak, in contracts all day, every day, seeing how things go wrong, understanding all the nuances of the different provisions, I think you're being penny wise foolish because the few thousand you would pay up front is gonna save you a lot of money when I mean, I've, I've worked with several clients who didn't hire a lawyer or hired the wrong ones. 
and then the lease is signed or the contract is signed, and then it becomes very expensive to get the problem fixed. Yeah, and it's too late. I mean, as an investor, you know, you might be able to get advice from your broker or a little bit of guidance from your broker, but they're not an attorney. And really, brokers shouldn't be giving that advice because it's it's crossing a very black and white line that can get them into trouble. That means they are accepting full liability for anything that happens because of what of their advice. Uh, the other nice thing is you get to pass the liability on to the attorney, right? I mean, it is the attorney's responsibility to make sure that you are protected. So, right. yeah, and it's it's one of those things when I talk with my clients and they, I'm not the business person, and so certain things will come come up in the contract or the lease, and I say that's what. You know, the broker is the business person. They crunch the numbers. They look at the cap rates. They look at the NOI. They look at all that stuff. I said, that's not a numbers person. That's that's their responsibility. But like, I'm the word person and I'll make sure you're protected. So it's really just a different level of expertise. And, you know, in a perfect world, you've got your you've got a very good business person. You've got a great lawyer. You have a good CPA. I mean, it takes really. Yeah, I've, I've seen the, the best way that I've heard it put is that brokers negotiate the numbers. The attorneys negotiate pretty much everything else yes. <laughs> because, because I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? Like I've seen attorneys try and negotiate rents. I mean, way too late in the game. LY has already been executed. Everything's agreed upon. The attorney gets the deal and he says, no, actually, I don't like this rent. They should be paying more. Right. And that blows my mind as a broker that an attorney's getting involved because I don't jump in and tell them, well, actually in your, you know, liability, you know, clause right here, you should change this. But but it goes reverse, right? I mean, brokers shouldn't be telling attorneys, you know, who are the expert in these clauses how to negotiate. You've got to really clearly delineate whose responsibilities are what. Right. And I actually want to bring up something real quick that I didn't plan on talking about. But it is really wise to have an attorney glance at LOI before it's signed. Yep. Just to Talk it. about that. Why? Well, I mean, you were saying once the LOI is signed and then it becomes um, gets over to the attorney. There's just certain provisions in LOI that are very legal, right? Like, you know, it's very important who's pulling title, who's paying. Well, the, the cost of title is really a business thing. But there's certain things that you can mitigate or alleviate at the LOI stage that prevent a lot of heartache. Because even though an LOI will be, you know, not binding, both parties are going to ri- rely on that very heavily PSA negotiation. And like we've talked about, the broker is going to look at the the LOI with the business terms, like what is the what makes sense for tenant allowance, what makes sense for rent in a, in a lease or um, in a purchase contract, the numbers. But the lawyer is going to look at it was like, hey, we got to make sure this says you know, earnest money is still refundable after this point. We've got to talk about contingency. Yeah, it's it makes a big difference because there are things that you can agree to in an LOI mm-hmm. that you probably shouldn't. But as soon as that document is executed, even though it's non-binding, oh even though it's non-binding, everybody treats it as binding. Yeah. I mean, it's it's word of law. I've had I've had you know just on the brokerage side, I've had people try and renegotiate lease terms that had already been agreed upon in the LOI, mm-hmm. and nobody will budge on them mm-hmm. because that was already agreed to in the LOI. Mm-hmm. There's no point in renegotiating that. Right. Right. So you got to stay ahead of it. Right. So I always tell my clients. I mean, sometimes it's after the fact, but I say for the next deal, just let me. So, so when should a should a, a commercial real estate investor typically bring an attorney into the deal? Is it at the point that they are about to execute the LOI, or no. is it before that? I I think it would be about right when you're ready to execute. I mean, at that point, you would think the broker had negotiated all like the core business terms, um, you know, in a, in a purchase contract. What's the sales price? What's the due diligence period? Is there a finance contingency? 
all of that would be negotiated up front. But just to have lawyers skim it quick, just to make sure, hey, you know, if you're the buyer, money is still refundable after this point, and that it just says expressly in the LOI who has what right. Yeah, and the attorney's going to have to have the LOI anyway at some point because they're going to have to use that to make sure that everything is in the lease properly. So you might as well get it. Yeah, LOI is, and it just gives. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, if you could just let me skim this. Uh, well, I guess why don't we back up for a second and we'll just talk a little bit because I think most of your viewers are kind of first timers, right? Yeah, there's a fair amount of we got a fair amount okay. of um, like completely brand new to real estate. Okay. Then we've got a decent amount of you know we already own a few properties. We own some residential real estate. We're looking to transition into commercial, and then we do have some. It's it's you know probably fewer than ten percent. But, you know, they're family offices, they're high net worth individuals that listen to the podcast. All right. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, what you should look for when you hire a lawyer? Yeah, let's do it. I've gone through many attorneys. To, I mean, that's <laughs> anybody, yeah. any commercial real estate investor will have to go through this process. So, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. So it's interesting to me um, when when people are interested in engaging me or another lawyer, the first question that they'll ask me is, what is your bill? Right. And so that's how lawyers make a living. Typically, is they, they bill their time. I don't particularly agree with it, but that's just how it works. And so I think the best way to approach hiring a counsel that works for you is to instead of focusing on billable rate is ask for referrals of their current clients, and then ask for similar deals that they've done that are like the deal that you're going to do. And law has become so specialized that you could be the best tax lawyer in the world. But if you're not a real estate lawyer, you don't have any business negotiating a contract or a lease. I mean, they're so specialized. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we're dealing with, a, with, with some contractor fraud at the moment. Oh. And we sent a complaint to the attorney general the contractor hired an attorney to give us a response, which isn't even typical in a response to the attorney general. It's a consumer affairs complaint. But he hired a lobbyist, oh, gosh. an attorney that is a lobbyist to respond, who has clearly no understanding of contract law, no understanding of construction. Oh. I mean, it's it's the funniest thing in the world. And we're reading this, and I could see how to a layperson. Like, oh, there's a lot of legal lease in here. Like, this looks really good. But I looked through it and I was like, man, this guy is so out of his lease. He's probably amazing at being a lobbyist. Right. And my heart breaks for that person because, I mean, I'm sure they got a fat legal bill. Probably. It wasn't even very helpful. And so I think uh, a lot of folks get fixated on what's your billable rate and where it should be really focused on is, is the attorney skilled? Do their clients respect them? And are they skilled in the area that you want to practice? Because if someone's really good at what they do, even if their rate's higher, they're going to get it done quicker and more efficiently. So you're at the end of the day, the bill might even be less than if you hired someone with a lower billable, but, you know, didn't have that experience or that, uh, I don't know, I guess experience is the best word. Yeah, I mean, look, $200 an hour sounds a lot more attractive than $425 an hour. But at the end of the day, you're going to get billed for 10 hours of education of that attorney having to go through and read all the documents and, and read the books and try and figure out how they should properly respond to this and talk to a couple of the bigger partners at the firm to understand you know, how they should actually do this. It, it right. never ends up working better. I mean, the, the analogy that I like to use, and bear with me, okay. is that attorneys are like tattoo artists. Mm. It's the same thing, right? Like you're not going to walk into a tattoo studio and say, what's your, what's your billable rate? You don't care. They're putting something per that will permanently be on your body for the rest of your life. It's the first question is, 
let me see some of your work. That's a good example. I need to see exactly how skilled you are doing tattoos before we even talk about that. That's a really good example. I, I learned the hard way with an uh, architect for mm-hmm. custom build. And I had never hired an architect before. And I got very fixated on cost and how quickly can you get it done. And when she gave me the first um, schematic, I just felt like, did you even listen to oh, Like, did you even listen to what I was telling you? Designed the wrong thing. Yeah, and I should have, you know, there was someone who I spoke to earlier who I really had a good feeling about, who was very experienced, but I got a little bit intimidated by his cost. And I ended up having to cut the other person a check for her time spent and hiring the other guy. So I was out more if I had just gone with the person who was more expensive but had the experience I needed. That was yeah. So how how do you how does someone overcome that fear, right? Because that's that's something that naturally, just as business people, we're always looking for the best deal, right? Like I I want the best price to get this legal work done. But as somebody that's not in the legal profession. You know, it's tough to understand really the difference of quality between attorneys. Right. I think if you're really new at it and hopefully you have some kind of mentor circle that's pretty good, you would just really want to get a referral. And actually, that's how my practice has really become a lot stronger and grown a lot. I mean, I've only been working for myself since last June. It's a lot of referral business because you do a good job for somebody and then. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's we've we've probably referred you to. A whole bunch of people, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. at least working on all of our stuff. I mean, there, yeah, there's a fair amount of work going on there. Oh, Ron, uh, Ron Rody's jumping in. Ron, what's going on, man? Saying great comment to ask about similar clients oh. and outcomes. I okay. completely agree. Still kind of hard to hear me. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, just keep your keep okay. your mouth about like two inches away from the mic. It's all kind right. of a tough habit to get into. Okay. Uh, appreciate it, Ron. Thanks for jumping in, man. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting when you're going through that process, and, and Rod would love to hear your thoughts on this, too. I mean, obviously, you're you're doing some real estate law down in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, like, what, what questions should I be asking, like, to understand right. the skill level of the attorney? I think I would just say, you know, in the last year, how many, if, if, I'm, if I'm wanting to buy a triple net property, it would just be kind of like, what other deals have you done that are similar to this? Yeah, I mean, just truly as objectively as that, right? And then if and if they can give you two examples and kind of walk you through what that looks like, there you go. Are there any gotcha questions that you could ask an attorney? Like, hey, what's your biggest screw up? Or who, do you have any clients that, or what would your uh, most unhappy client say about you? I mean, I love asking questions like that because mm-hmm. it tells one a lot about somebody's character if they're willing to, to say it. Like, hey, hey, here's what happened and here's how I rectified oh. it. Um, but I didn't know if there's anything specifically there. I don't know. That's more like a job interview question. Yeah. Uh, I think I would be really focused on what similar deals have you done, you know, in the last year and kind of what's the average cost been? Because clients will ask me, or prospective clients will say like, how much should this cost? And you say, well, I can give you a range best case scenario, but this is assuming there's no title issue. This is assuming the other party is going to be a reasonable negotiator. You know, there's yeah. a lot of assumptions and, you know, it, when the commodity here is time, it just depends. Well, let's talk about that too, because, you know, there, everybody wants to get an estimate, right? It's tough on an hourly basis, yeah. right? To, to even give remotely give an estimate. Right. Well, let's talk about why, because, you know, when you're getting into these deals, mm-hmm. you don't know how much negotiating you're going to have to do. I've gotten yeah. some PSAs where I sent it to my attorney and we had one red line. Right. 
you know, and I've had some PSAs where we got it back from the opposing counsel and it looked like a leprechaun threw up on the page. Yeah. It was just the, the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like, okay, this attorney's clearly trying to justify their billing rate. Right. I mean, how you do you- still know. Yeah. You just don't know. And what I, what I always do with my clients, like once we're under contract and it's due diligence time, uh, I always say, hey, how involved do you want me to be? You know, you're the one with the checkbook. Do you want me to comb through everything? Do you want the brokers to do some? You know, I kind of let them let me know, like, how much money that they're willing to spend. Yeah, I mean, what what do you typically recommend? Oh, let's see, Ron's jumping in as well. Let's see, Ron, who is your ideal client who is not a good 50-year law firm? I like that one, too. He said, I like when clients ask me about going full cycle with a single client. That's a good question, too. Like, how, what was it like? What was your experience? I think that kind of goes into your referral um, kind of statement there earlier. It's like, you know, if somebody's satisfied enough with working with you yeah. to, to want to refer you. That's always the biggest compliment is I'll get a call and they're like, so-and-so told me about you and I have this deal. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. So that's good. And then, you know, I guess we'll segue a little bit. You know, we're talking about the importance of using an attorney. And then I think maybe that makes sense to talk about, in at least in commercial, the importance of doing and why you really need an attorney is to do a custom purchase agreement. Yep. Yeah. Let's Not talk about that. Those canned ones. Let's, let's dive into that. So, right. so let's assume... You've been engaged, mm -hmm. you've reviewed the LOI, and you are on the buy side because it's different when you're on the sell side. Sure. What What is the next steps of working with an attorney for a real estate investor from the buy side? Well, usually the LOI will say which party will be drafting the PSA. And I mean, when you're a seller, you don't care. You just want to dump the property. You want seller to buy it as quick, or excuse me, buyer to buy it as quickly as possible. You don't care about contingency. You don't care. You want the earnest money to go hard really fast. But the worst is when I get, you know, one of those almost like a residential canned form. Oh yeah, the, the TAR form, the yeah. Tennessee Association of Real or the National Association yeah, of Realtor form. And I'm like, look, we can't, no way. That's that's always bad news. Why is that? Commercial deals, there's just so many different details involved that you can't. It's not like Bobby and Susie buying a house. Get closer to the mic. Which is, okay. <laughs> okay. It is a. Uh... All right, is this better? Yeah, just okay. let us know if that's better. We'll make sure. Okay, close it. Thanks for the feedback. It's just the co uh, commercial deals are much more involved. There's a lot more to them between um, due diligence and timing. And when there's a tenanted property, right in triple net, there's actually you're buying the lease. It's not just buying a you know residential home on a quarter acre with a house, and maybe a swimming pool. Right. Like there's just a lot more mechanics to it. And so these leases don't anticipate anything like that. And and no two properties are the same. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it's I feel like it's so it can be so canned when it comes to residential, mm -hmm. but it's it's not remotely the same in, in commercial real estate. I mean, you no. can have the same house over and over and over, right. and over again, track homes. Right. There's not really gonna be a whole lot that you need to worry right. about. Right. And if and especially because there's a tenant in the property, you know, and a lot of the purchase contract has to anticipate different things like that with an estoppel, has rent commenced. There's different things that really are um, much more specific to the deal. Yeah. So when, when we're buying triple net assets, the most important thing to us is the lease. A lot of people think it's actually the property. Right. It's not necessarily the property. I mean, the property's nice. Yeah. Right? In 10 years, I might get that back. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about why the lease is the most important part of the now, I'm glad you brought that up, and I figured we'd probably talk a lot about that today. In the triple net world, 
And it's interesting because even some of the clients that you've referred to me, we've had to have these like yeah. come to Jesus moments where I'm like, guys, <laughs> you know, they're upset because the building isn't as pristine. And it's like, you're not, you're not really buying the building. You're buying the paper. You're buying the steady rent check every month from this tenant. That's the most important thing. Um, it, it Certainly the real estate is important and maybe we'll do another thing about the basics of title and that kind of stuff. But the most important asset that you're buying in the typical triple net deal is the lease. And so, you know, the most important thing in due diligence to look at, of course, is making sure the lease is totally shored up. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, I've had, I've had clients, you know, again, back in, back in my day when I was a broker, <laughs> uh, you know, fortunately now I've got a team that handles all this for me, but I would have clients that would bring it up and be like, why am I paying $500 a square foot for this building? Right. It's like, well, you're, you're getting a 9% cap rate on right. it. Right. It's a really good deal. Right. You know, if, if there were if there were two years remaining on the lease, then yeah, let's have a different conversation. Right. We probably need to start figuring out how to bring this back to reality right. as to what the, the actual price per square foot of the building would be. Mm-hmm. But you're buying that lease. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're doing a single tenant net lease or a triple net lease investment, mm-hmm. what are the first things that you start doing when you're reviewing the leases, like what, right. what do you call out? Okay, so so now say we're under contract, we're in the due diligence period. You want to buy a property that has a lease on it. The first thing you want to do, of course, is make sure that the tenant or the guarantor is shored up very, very strong, right? So a lot of times, certain tenants will have what they call an SPE, a single purpose entity. It's just an LLC that's kind of a shell, and if you need to make sure that if that's the case, that you have a very strong guarantor. Um, How do you check that? That's a broker thing. You're going to want to look at all sorts of tax returns, financials. Does the guarantor have other properties? But the last thing you want to do is buy property where the tenant is just kind of this flimsy shell that could go away and then you're stuck. So, so do the attorneys get involved in the personal guarantee at all outside of the negotiating the, the guarantee? Yeah. Not really. I mean, even the LOI will sometimes negotiate guarantee. Well, that's that's for a lease. I'm crossing hairs right now. Um, <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, I'm like, well, that's that's actually another thing to kind of jump back. You know, 20 minutes ago, when you're hiring an attorney to do these deals, you also want to get someone who can draft the contract for you, but can also really understands leasing. Yeah. Because at this point, when you're looking to buy the property, the lease is already negotiated and signed, and you want to make sure that who's ever representing you in this purchase, that they understand, you know, how strong that lease is or is not. Yeah, because a real estate attorney should have a pretty good understanding mm-hmm. of all aspects of it. I mean, I, I would imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine most attorneys, when they first get started, they're probably, you know, the junior attorneys that are working through the leases mm-hmm. and actually putting together all that language. And that's probably where a lot of real estate attorneys cut their teeth. I mean, there's, yeah, that that would be fair because sometimes those are like lower dollar things going on. And, and a lot of it's monotonous. Yeah, it is. Some of those provisions like indemnity oh, and all that. Yeah, it's bad. But, um, but right, you want to have an attorney who can negotiate the contract for you to purchase, but also can really read the lease. So when I'm working for a client who's buying and then I'm combing through the lease, you know, the big question is, one, is this tenant very strong? Because when you own the property and you're the landlord and you're collecting rent, is this tenant going to be around for a long time? Is there a guarantor that's going to step up to the plate if tenant defaults? Yeah, because the lease is the most important thing. Right. And the lease does not matter at all if there's no business there to pay it. Right. Right. So it, it all comes down to the to the guarantee, the credit of the tenant, 
Uh, and of course, that's on your broker, right? I mean, that's that's why you're paying them the big bucks to to pull these deals together. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what clauses in a lease would you consider to be the most important or what, what stand out to you the most when you start reviewing these? Sure. So I think the, the first step would be to make sure that the tenant is very strong. And that's kind of, that's a mix between the broker and sort of the lawyer, but mostly the broker. The second is really kind of combing through the entire lease to make sure it's truly triple net. Because a lot of times you'll have an out-of-state buyer who lives in Nevada who wants to buy a gas station in Florida to collect the rent. And if you're an out-of-state landlord, you want zero maintenance responsibilities. And as you know, a triple net lease means the rent paid to landlord is is completely net, right? There's generally very few obligations. And if it's a single tenant lease... Um, as opposed to like a shopping center or where there's cam and all that, um, it's it's easier. That's a little bit easier to understand when you're combing through. Um, there's much less landlord responsibility, rather. So triple net means that tenant either pays directly or reimburses landlord for real estate taxes, landlord's insurance, and then any maintenance for the property. So it's a little bit tricky. I had a client who... Um, we weren't working together on this deal, but he had made a mistake and didn't, I think it was Aspen Dental has some leases that are actually a double net lease and they oh, didn't understand that. Yeah. And so he ended up buying an Aspen Dental thinking it was triple net and it wasn't, it was double. So then the landlord is required to be more involved. And I think it was landlord had some pretty significant significant maintenance responsibilities. I think Aspen reimbursed for Landlords, real estate taxes and insurance. But, you know, if, if you're doing triple net, you want to make sure that lease says everything, absolutely everything is on tenant to do at tenant sole cost and expense. While well, I have an attorney in here. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be, I need to like, this qualifier. Like, yeah. This is not legal advice. This yeah. is not legal advice. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have all the disclaimers here. Right. So I had somebody <laughs> jump into uh, one of my videos and start oh. commenting and arguing with me over what a triple net lease was. Well, no. So can you explain what okay. a double net, a triple net, and an absolute net lease are and okay. kind of the differences from a, from a legal perspective? Absolute net. I've not really heard... That so much. I've always heard triple net and absolute net, I think, are the same. I mean, triple is, you know, when I think of triple, it's right real estate taxes, landlord's insurance, and maintenance obligations. Those are kind of the three buckets of cost. And when you talk about triple net, those three things are rent is net to landlord. When you talk about double net, I don't know if double net specifically... I think it can fluctuate. Yeah, I think I think it'd be either two or three. three, Right, that's what I thought too. Uh, Same with single net; like it can be any one of the three. Right, right, and then but you never see single net anymore. Right, and then there's also gross and modified gross and and all of that stuff. But if it's truly triple net, you need to comb through that lease and make sure as hell it is. And sometimes there's really express language. A good lease will say expressly there will be a provision in there that says this lease is triple net. All rent is net to landlord. So there's there's yeah. Yeah, keep that's, an eye out for that language. That's helpful. Because well, that's the other thing. There's a lot of people that look through these leases and they're like, well, it doesn't say it's a triple net lease anywhere in here. Right. It's like, well, it's not going to just explicitly say it's triple Sometimes it gotta... does, but sometimes you've got to look at the insurance provision and it'll say tenant is to reimburse landlord or tenant is to pay directly. It's basically how the provisions are set up mm-hmm. for the tenant to pay for all that. Right. Absolute net means that the tenant is responsible for roof and structural maintenance as well. Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. So you, you, 
might see that sometimes. Because, I mean, again, these leases aren't always as cold out as this is triple that or this right. is absolute that or this is double that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess maybe that's more of a brokerage term. Well, in a single tenant, that makes sense because I do a lot of shopping center too. Oh, it makes right? sense. If, it, if it's a multi-tenanted property, landlord is going to be in charge of the roof because it's many tenants share that roof. Many yeah, it's tough to kind of justify. Yeah, you, you know, can't. just because food marts roof started failing, that right. all the tenants next to them have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So how how do I know if I've got a bad attorney? Like going wow. through the process, you know, because I mean, again, like. I, I get calls from people right. that are like, well, my attorney's telling me that I should do this. I'm like, well, I'm not an attorney, but that doesn't sound no. right. I think a lot of times you have to go with your gut. Yeah. I think a lot of times you have to go with your gut. And it's hard because when you are, when you're buying an expensive property, say like a $1.5 million deal, I mean, you already have anxiety. Sure. And so it's hard to know, is this just, is this anxiety or is this like my gut, you know, just kind of being on point? And I think this is the, you know, probably where people who are involved in your classes and who pay attention to your stuff and, and there's like a, a mentor network where you can ask questions. I think that's really helpful if you don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, know. you, you got to have that. Yeah, you do. Right? Like that's, it's yeah. so important to have a partner or somebody with experience in it. I mean, I tell people that that are getting started all the Someone time. Someone that you trust. Someone yep. that, that has time to listen. It's been there, done that. Yeah. But I mean- I don't know if you have a bad attorney. I I think someone who's very, you know, communicates clearly and uh, timely is very important. And who, you know, gets along pretty well with the adverse party, even, you know, even when it gets bumpy. But going with your gut is important. And also having people that in your circle that you trust that you can ask. Let's, uh, let's kind of circle back to a little bit earlier in the conversation because I want to talk about this too. There are some deals that are flat rate and some that are hourly. Mm. Can you talk about when it would be appropriate for something to be flat rate versus hourly? Like, mm. yeah, you know, right off the top of my head, negotiating a PSA is going to be hourly because right. you have no idea what's going on. But drafting a lease yeah. might be a flat rate to just get the lease template and then it's hourly based on negotiations thereafter. I don't in my practice right now do anything flat. The only time I would do something flat is if I was working with a client who... Say they were a tenant and they were going into all these different shopping centers and like it was very routine, you know, or if you. Yeah, just like a monthly retainer. Yeah, I just I don't do any flat stuff because I don't think it's truly fair for either party because if it's. Somebody's going to lose. Someone's going to lose because it's either like, oh, I'll get paid the same amount even if I do less time. You know, it's just. I don't love I hate that time is my commodity here, but I, I actually don't do anything flat. Yeah, uh, and some other att- attorneys do. I just don't. I feel like it's not fair for both. I I think that's a pretty good way of looking yeah. at it. Yeah. What do you think about AI getting involved in legal? Because <laughs> I've seen so many people saying, "Oh, I don't need to hire an attorney. I can just have ChatGPT." And I look at that. And I'm like, "Oh man, that person." Uh, well, I don't know. Years. Does Chat whatever it is have like malpractice? Probably. Yeah, not. they probably don't have malpractice <laughs> insurance. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of I wrote down just a couple other things during the lease. Yeah, know, yeah. To pay Let's attention to. Um, but I I don't know about honestly. I'm such a luddite. Like. I, I regret that I just updated my iPhone. I'm like, I, I would just go back to like old school everything. Like, you know. Oh, I talk about this. This is so off topic. <laughs> I talk about this all the time. I think that if somebody comes up with a car company oh. that remakes cars from the 70s and 80s yeah. with manual roll-up windows, really manual like stick shift cars, yeah. 
very, no bells and whistles. Yeah. I would I would love that. Oh, because I, I'm so tired so of the computers. Better. I've started yeah. seeing videos on Reddit now of people walking outside of somebody's house using an antenna to really? get their key to unlock the car. Oh, my God. And then started the car driving off. What? Yeah. I'm like, you couldn't do that in my yeah. 1978 F-350. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I, I read the journal almost every day, and I know there's a lot about AI and everything, but, like, I just I just took a break off Instagram for a while because I'm like, I'm just the noise gets to be too much. Well, it's good. It's good to do. I mean, it's it's weird, like how fast things are moving. Yeah. But then you also have to put it back in perspective. I mean, everybody thought a few years ago, blockchain was going to completely change real estate. Yeah. Right. Do you remember that? Like, oh, blockchain's going to completely I change title remember. and blockchain's yeah. going to completely change the way that we buy real estate. We're not going to buy real estate, you know, anymore. We're going to buy these tokens. And that's right. how we'll own the oh, real estate. Yeah. And I was like, man. Maybe, I mean, it'd be kind of nice. It would be nice to have a, an unbroken chain of title mm -hmm. through the blockchain um, so that you don't really have to run title searches anymore. Like, it's just independently verified by hundreds of different, mm -hmm. you know, programs or whatever it is. Right. But it's not even remotely close to getting implemented. I don't know. I mean, there's always room for improvement, no doubt. And some of the stuff we do, especially in law, is very antiquated. But at the same time, it's like, it's going to be standard for a while. Yeah, I, I can't know. see it changing. I mean, yeah. malpractice alone is worth it. Yeah, like, if you want to do your AI thing, it's just, you know, legal Zoom and all that. I mean, good for you. Like, you do what you want, but... Well, the point is, it's, it's only good as the prompts, right? And if you, yeah. if you don't legally understand enough to prompt it in the right way, right. and then critique it, right. it doesn't matter. It's right. probably not going to cover you. Yeah, probably not. I, I don't know if I would fool with that. Let's, uh, let's get back to other, other things in the lease. Okay, sure. Okay, so we talked about the strength of the tenant and or guarantor. Then we talked about ensuring that the lease is truly triple net. And then the third, I, I just kind of put five points for us to think about. Yeah. The third would be, right, that there's no, you know, are there any termination rights for tenant in the lease? Okay. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, right. So, like, you have a really strong tenant and a really strong guarantor, and you're sure that it's triple net. Well, is there embedded somewhere in this lease a right for tenant to terminate? And hopefully not. But- I mean, it could, you know, that's one thing to pay attention to. And if, if you have a savvy broker, they should be, you know, you shouldn't be buying anything until all contingencies have waived. Like if it's new construction, um, tenants should already have their permits. Tenants should already be open and paying rent. Those would be contingencies under a lease where a lot of times tenants would have the right to terminate if that didn't come through, like getting their permits and opening. Yeah, we've had one client before that was in a, in a 1031 exchange oh. and they wanted to close before the tenant had commenced rent they'd I've, already I've opened occupied before. yes and and i was like That's yeah i mean you know as long as you have some sort of clawback in the psa which you can do yeah you right? can do a hold back post-closing hold back or something yeah. like that but i had a i was actually representing the developer landlord and we couldn't believe it but we we sold this i think it was like a dunkin donuts in south carolina and it was a 1031. They just needed it real bad. And I mean, they bought it and like, it was like the wet, the paint was still wet on the walls. Like, I mean, and they didn't care. They didn't even like ask about anything like that. But did it go okay? I get, the, we sold it. We were the seller. We yeah, didn't care. So, so you never we heard like, back from them. No, so, so yeah, but I mean, if you're buying, your <laughs> if you're buying property, you better make sure that the tenant's open, paying rent, rent's commenced, you get a clean estoppel. That there's no right to terminate in the lease. I was going to say estoppels. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Because that is what, probably one of the most misunderstood. Sure. And that's something that should, if you're buying, that needs to be in the LOI. Okay. So estoppel, 
I forget the actual how the word it's kind of a weird word and I forget in legal terms how it was explained but it's something like you would be you this the estoppel the estoppel is a certificate signed by tenant that verifies certain things in the lease and I think that means when tenant makes the statements they're estopped from saying otherwise that's such a funny it's tough. I'm trying to like just be, remember back to like yeah, is it, is it is it Latin? Is it I don't Greek? know. It like, doesn't even matter. But what the estoppel certificate is, and most leases will have a provision in there that requires tenant to give an estoppel. And there's a certain time period. Um, for example, I was just working on, I was working with a seller who was selling a Jack in the Box, and the Jack in the Box fast food chain. You know, you have to look through the their lease, and they have an estoppel provision. And I think it was they needed a 15 day notice period. And there were certain um, statements that they agreed that they would make in their estoppel, like rent commenced on whatever date, rent has not been paid more than 30 days in advance. To my knowledge, neither tenant or landlord are in default of the lease, et cetera. So when you're buying property, you want to make sure that a estoppel certificate from tenant is what you call clean, that it doesn't say, yeah, by the way, landlord's in default. Yeah, by the way, we're all we're owed this offset rent. We're yeah. owed all of these different... Don't take the landlord's word for it. No. Because the landlord is motivated by selling right. you the property. They don't want you to think there's any problems. Right. You gotta talk to the tenants. Yeah, you need to get that estoppel from tenant. And that should be up in the LOI that says closing. You know, when you negotiate the closing day, it's either like the later to occur of X amount of days from the expiration of your due diligence or, you know, whatever days from receipt of a clean estoppel from tenant. Clean estoppel meaning that it alleges no defaults. Yeah, because I've seen typically most tenants will have up to 30 days to respond to an estoppel. Yeah, and so you got to think about that early. Yeah. Right. You got to think about that early. And if you're working with a lender, I mean, they're going to want to see an estoppel. Yeah. Is it a red flag to you if a landlord says, no, I'm not going to provide an estoppel for this tenant? Oh, yeah. I mean, the leases should have a requirement in there. And during due diligence, you're going to be looking at the lease anyhow. Yeah. But because yeah, yeah. a rent roll and a lease like, can say hiding? two very different things right. from an estoppel. Right. And if landlord wasn't going to ask tenant, I mean, that's a big problem. Yeah. That's when you walk away. That's when you walk away. Yeah, because you have no idea what's going on, especially if they're like, no, you can't talk to my tenants. Uh, we've had that before, too. Well, like, well, landlord is the one that would request the estoppel. Right. You know, and if they're not trying to request it, I mean, that's... Big red That's flag. in a quicksand, yeah. Yeah. So, right. So, estoppels are important. Um, making sure that tenant has no right to terminate in the lease. Uh, you know, but for like if there's a um, event of casualty, condemnation, that's very Yeah, standard. your typical ones. Right. Like if the building burned down or eminent domain happened, that's fine. But, other but if, than if that, there's like a kickout clause, uh, so like in year two, I mean, Starbucks is notorious for Oh, this. yeah, sales kick. Like in, in two, year two or year three, if sales haven't hit X, right. then they can just terminate their lease and walk away. Right, right. Sales and kick that is painful. Mm-hmm. I mean- it's crazy to me that they would go through all the effort, but I guess it makes sense to them to buy. Yeah, it's just well, they're like we're Starbucks. Spend, we don't throw care. good money after bad. I've yeah. worked on a couple of Starbucks leases, and oh, I mean, it's miserable. it is because I mean they're you know they're the gorilla. In the room. Yeah, they like, they understand Starbucks. their power. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do. Yeah, I've worked on a couple of deals with them, and man, is it tough. It is. Yeah, but you know, it's like Amazon. Like they come in, they get what they want, or you don't. You don't get it. They'll go to the next property. Mm-hmm. It's true. What's, uh, what else did you have in your list? Okay, so making sure that tenant has no termination rights, contingencies have expired, 
the fourth thing is to really pay attention to the default provisions. And okay. so if it's truly a triple net or absolute rent, absolute net lease, landlord is going to have very few maintenance obligations, which means landlord would have very, very few instances where a landlord could be put in default by tenant. Now, when you buy the property, of course, you become the landlord and you want to make sure best case scenario is that there's no landlord default provision in the lease. So if you're a landlord and you don't do something you're supposed to, all tenant can really do is sue you. You want to watch out for language where tenant has the right to self-help, mm -hmm. where tenant can just go in and fix whatever it is that they think is wrong that's supposed to be landlord's responsibility. So then there's self-help, and then the other side of that would be offset rent. So tenant, for example, would go in and fix the roof and then say, hey, you know, it's, t it's a 10 grand repair, and we're actually going to just offset our rent for that 10000 until it's paid back. So pay attention to default. And then, you know, if you want a really beefy tenant default section where you basically can go in, um, you don't have to give a ton of notices. If tenants late paying rent, you can just put them in default quickly, short cure periods, you can accelerate rent. You don't really have any obligation to mitigate damages, that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on rent abatement from tenants going dark? in a shopping center. So it's it's rare and I've only seen it in bigger tenants leases. Yeah. But, you know, somebody, you know, that's occupying 10, 20, 30,000 square feet will say, "Hey, if the occupancy of the shopping center ever goes below 80%, oh, my rent, yeah, in co-tenancy, my rent gets cut in half." Co-tenancy is a really tough provision yeah. because then that's for like a multi-tenanted shopping center lease where they say, "Look, if whatever well there's there's usually opening co-tenancy which you're talking about right. you're talking about ongoing co-tenancy which tenants will say hey we made this lease with the expectation that these anchors are going to be here open and operating and if they're not our rent's going to be cut until you get a suitable replacement and that's really tricky because in the last you know bed bath and beyond's gone oh yeah or, it's like, happened a lot right actually. you think about like these big you know, anchor tenants that have gone under Macy's, Toys R Us, yeah, and um, I'm trying to think of there's there's plenty, and I always like kind of think about that. Which oh yeah, well because those landlords right. are already getting hit hard by Toys R Us right. filing bankruptcy, right. and, and then the half of their tenants are not paying what they right. should be because they've got co-tenancy clauses. Yeah, co-tenancy is really tough. I mean, obviously in the single tenant triple net you wouldn't deal with co-tenancy because there's no more tenants but in the shopping center world that's really tricky and that's something like on the landlord side like if my client was a landlord and we're negotiating against a tenant co-t language is really important and it's very nuanced i mean people have to get very clever with when does rent abatement start and what does suitable replacement mean and yeah Oh yeah, you got to get really creative sometimes yeah. with and the way those things. You can't rely on legal zoom. <laughs> no, no. Well, because the thing is, like, this is what I tell everybody: one word and one sentence yeah. and one paragraph can completely change the meaning of the lease. That's all it takes. I and I mean, that's the wild thing to me about about the legal world. And I'm so grateful I don't have to <laughs> be in it all the time. Sometimes I'm like, why don't we go down this path? <laughs> No, it's good. I mean, hey, it helps you with everything that you want to do outside of what you're yeah, doing in the world, true. too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. It's a good job. What's uh, what's number five? Okay, so the fifth, right, is the assignment and sublet provision. 
Okay. And this is really important because as a landlord, you always want to retain control over who is the tenant in your lease. And if you have an assignment provision in there, you want to make sure that, one, you have to give your approval first. Tenant is not able to just assign in or sublet it to whoever they want. You want the right to assign. Um, and and why is that? Let's let's give these real estate investors some ammo because they may be dealing with a tenant at some point that wants that. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about why we don't want. Yeah, that. you would just say, look, like we made the deal at the you know at the commencement date, like we made the deal with you as tenant for your goodwill, for your net worth, for everything else, like for your use. Right, we made the deal with you. We didn't make the deal with whoever you decide you want to sublet it to to become tenant. I mean, that gives tenant complete control. Oh, yeah. And I've seen the landlord really, you know. I've seen buildings completely go downhill because of that. Oh, really? Like not having a proper like sublease or assignment clause in there. Oh, gosh. And the tenants will just say, they'll just give it to whoever's willing to pay them rent. And sometimes they're like, I don't care. I'll take a tenth of the rent or a fifth of the rent, whatever. I just, just want to get out. Just and you'll have a vape shop move in or you'll have something unsavory move in that none of right. the other tenants in the area want. Right. And that's the only way that that right. business could have gotten in there. Used, like not have as good, you know, not being high credit. So landlord always, always, always wants to retain control over any assignee or sub lessee. And then if tenant comes back and says, look, like, well, I want to be able to assign it to my franchisor. I want to be able to assign it to a bona fide franchisee. Franchisor, you can kind of get down with, but then you have to make sure that whoever franchisor then assigns to is also credit worthy. Right. And if I would I would be very reluctant to allow for an assignment in the lease to a franchisee because the franchisee, maybe- You have maybe, no idea what their financials right, are like. And maybe the franchisee is good enough for the franchisor, but not for landlord. I'm- um, you want to make sure that the permitted use stays the same. You want to retain control over your approval rights. You want to make sure that even if you let tenant assign, that they remain liable and that guarantor remains liable. The only time you would ever let a tenant off is if they assigned it to an, another tenant with like an insane amount of like minimum net worth. And yeah. you would have to go and vet their financials like you did in the beginning. But other than that, like, you would you should not you know your all, your whole asset goes downhill. Yeah, we don't let we don't allow that to happen on any of our properties. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on the clauses that landlords will put in these where they they get to retain fifty percent profit? Another mic thing. Say adjust, adjust the volume on her mic. I'm pretty much in it. I mean, hmm. yeah, I'm not is sure what's going, going on. This is me talking. Yeah, I'm looking at the the monitor. You're hitting the same volume peaks I am. Okay, we'll figure it out later. All right. <laughs> um, so, so where the the landlord has the right mm-hmm. to um, take like fifty percent of the profit above and beyond the base rent mm-hmm. if a tenant subleases it or signs it. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on those clauses? When I'm representing landlord, I always make sure that land because it's it's the lease is not there for tenant to like make money off of. Yeah. Right. It's this not, is an arbitrage. Right. It's not like you know Airbnb where a tenant leases out an apartment in Manhattan and then Airbnbs it out and like nets all of this above whatever rent they would be paying landlord. You know, it's not a commercial lease is not like that. So yeah, a landlord is, there should be a provision in there that says like any, any rent that the assignee would pay above rent due landlord, landlord gets. I mean, tenant shouldn't be able to, it's not a profit center. Yeah. 
So, exactly. Yeah. Well, Justine, this has been a great conversation around yeah. hiring the proper real estate attorney. Yeah. If anybody listening in the audience wants to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Um, well, I don't have a website, and which I need to do. <laughs> Reach out to me. I'll give you a referral. I know. I need to. Like, I'm taking a break off Instagram. But... I'll put your LinkedIn. Uh, oh, yeah. LinkedIn okay. I'm on LinkedIn. And then my my email address is justine at jmoreaulaw.com. Pretty simple. There you go. Yeah. We'll put that in there as well. Justine, okay. thanks for joining us today. All right, Appreciate you. you all for jumping in <laughs> and uh, for all of your comments. And we'll see you all in the next one. This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com.